You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good to be here. I'm going to pray before we begin, hey? Let's come before God. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather here together. Lord, we together, including myself, humble ourselves under your mighty word that it wouldn't be our opinion or what feels right, but it would be your word that that dominates the the true nature of our lives. This isn't easy. Our pride gets in the way. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd humble us graciously. You'd help to to show us that your way is good, right, and true, that you have the, the best plan for us we could ever imagine. So we trust you with our future. We trust you with the next 30 minutes as we dive into your word. And we pray that we'd come out with goodness for our lives. Bless this church, this small, growing community with your presence that people might enter here, might experience this community and say, surely God is among them. That is our prayer. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. You know, six months before, about six months so before Pippa and I were married, myself and 10 of my closest mates went up the coast for a classic boys surf trip. And we did all the things you'd expect on a classic boys surf trip. We surfed a lot, we ate terrible food, we watched terrible movies, uh, stayed up all night, and we generally kind of annoyed the neighbours of the resort complex that we were staying at. I think that's the obligation of a boys surf trip. Um, one afternoon I was body surfing just with a good mate of mine at a beach. And uh, we were chatting, and we, he was my best man. I sort of asked him to be my best man, and we were talking all about that. It was quite exciting. And we completely lost track of where we were. We dived in at the flags, but we were distracted. We went out, and I, I looked back. I couldn't see the flags, and we'd been dragged metres and metres, potentially 100 or so metres down the beach. I started to get a bit concerned. I wonder if you've had an ex- experience like this before. started to get a bit concerned. I actually did the thing you're not supposed to do. I started to panic. I'm not a strong swimmer. I never have been. And I started to panic. I started to lose focus. And I did the worst thing. You probably know what this is. I tried to swim against the rip. Right? They say you're not supposed to do that. But I don't know. What else do you do? Swim away from it? And you go, I don't know. I don't know much about the ocean. I should. I've grown up in Sydney my whole life. But I started swimming against the rip. And what happens when you do that is you just become exhausted. And the waves were huge and pounding, and I became exhausted pretty quickly. Uh, and I was panicking. I didn't really know what to do. Now, my friend with me, he's quite a strong swimmer, and uh, he could see I was struggling. And, and he kind of yelled out amongst the pounding waves, he said, Dave, are you doing okay? You all right? You need some help. And even in my exhausted state, I was pretty struggling. This stupid, prideful part of me thought, no, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. But I wasn't okay. I was struggling. So I actually signaled to him, mate, I, yeah, I, I nodded or shook me. I can't really remember. But I said I wasn't doing well. Within seconds, lifeguards were there. It was quite amazing, on a rubber ducky, hauling me over the side. The first time I'd been rescued like that. And um, uh, somehow my friend had managed to signal the lifeguards over the waves uh, to the shore. The lifeguards, they were there in seconds, hauled me over. And now as I was lying on my back in the boat, and, and then afterwards lying on my back on the beach, my pride pretty stung, I was incredibly thankful for my mate. 
Incredibly thankful for my good friend who signaled to the lifeguards. Super thankful for the lifeguards. They were there like that. They got their eyes on the beach. Lesson learned, swim between the flags and stay between the flags. I scream at my kids when we're at the beach because I know what it's like. Without my good mate, without the lifeguards, I don't know if I'd be here today. That's the truth. Pretty scary, right? This morning, we dive into this very famous passage, Daniel in the lion's den. Here we are. And we're going to see our main character needs to be saved. He is in great need of being rescued from the hungry lions. And you and I are going to discover that we're the same. We're not caught up in the lion's den, but we are desperately in need of a rescue, just like me out in the ocean. And you know what? We're pretty fortunate because our God is a saving God. Our God is a rescuing God. He cannot help but It is in his very nature to rescue those in need. So welcome to our final message in the book of Daniel. This is our sixth week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I mean, I'm pretty biased. I've preached most of the messages, but I've really enjoyed it. And we're finally here at Daniel the Lion's Den. We've titled the series In the Lion's Den. Here we are, the famous events that have birthed the name of this series. Of course, we've, we've called it that because of Daniel and the Lion's Den. We've also called it that because living as a Christian in a city like Sydney can sometimes feel like we're living in the Lion's Den. Our workplaces, the culture, kind of the air we breathe, sometimes it feels like, man, things are against us. It kind of feels like living in the Lion's Den. So where are we? Where are we in the book of Daniel? I won't give you a comprehensive context, but I'll give you a paragraph. The kingdom of Babylon is no more. Kingdom of Babylon is no more. It's been defeated by the new superpower on the scene, Persia. The history books tell us that Persia overtook the kingdom of Babylon, the city of Babylon, with no bloodshed. They're moved in, and now a new king is in charge, King Darius. So he sets about setting up his kingdom, right? He sets up three senior administrators to rule over the whole thing, and then sort of 120 junior administrators to rule under them. But... As we've seen over and over, over and over in this story, Daniel, our main character Daniel, is endowed with incredible wisdom. From who? From God. He is the personification of biblical wisdom. Now, the new king, Darius, he's on the scene, but he can see. Daniel's special. There's something about him, and he wants to make him rule over everybody, just under him, prime minister over everybody, over the, the three senior administrators and over the 120 administrators under them. It's a phenomenal thing. Why? Because Daniel's in exile. Don't you remember? I mean, not that long ago, he was taken from his homeland, Israel, that was destroyed, brought to this new place. He's a foreigner. He's an outsider. And yet, Daniel is revered above everybody else. And part of the reason is because he didn't do two, two, one of two things. He didn't retreat. He didn't gather with the other Jews and thought, the heck with this kind of Babylonian Persian empire. We're going to stay with us. We reject this new world, we're just going to stay within ourselves in kind of a holy huddle. They didn't do that. They engaged in the life of the city. One other thing they didn't do is Daniel didn't compromise. He didn't utterly sort of lose his faith. He didn't conform. He didn't assimilate and lose his distinctiveness. And this is why a book like Daniel is so relevant to you and I today because we've got the same choice, don't we? Some of us kind of have this mindset of, this world's going to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. And so we'll just sort of, the church and Christians, we'll get together in a holy huddle. We'll just wait till Jesus comes back. And, you know, we can't engage with the world because it's completely sinful. So we'll just sort of gather together like Christians. You might hear of people like this. And, and that's, 
That's um, failing to engage well in the culture, isn't it? That's going into a holy huddle. Uh, You and I have this same choice. We can do that. We can retreat or we can compromise, sort of assimilate, lose our distinctiveness and just be like everybody else. We don't have to do one of those two things. We don't just have to retreat or assimilate. As we see in Daniel, we can engage in our culture and remain faithful. Daniel's a great example of this. Now, Daniel's promotion, it's kind of inflamed the jealousy of his rivals. As you heard in the reading, as Andrew read so well for us, they can't stand the thought of this exile ruling over them. So they try and find fault with him. But they can't. His record's too good. He's a man of integrity. His record at work is too good. No corruption or deceit. He hasn't compromised. He's a man of great integrity. So his rivals think, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to bring him down? It's got to have something to do with his faith. He seems to be very committed to his God. So let's pit the two against each other, faithfulness to the king or faithfulness to God. Now, there's so much for us to get, even just at this point, out of this passage, but it's helpful to stop here and pause and have a think. See, the truth is, you and I, we are going to receive persecution in this life. Non-negotiable. If we're faithful followers of Jesus, we will cop it in some ways. What did Jesus say? Hey, if they don't like me, they're not going to like you. But here's the thing. We're going to face trials and persecution because of following Jesus, but let it be for that. I think it's important to say in our current cultural climate, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because of obnoxiousness. Right? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of rudeness. It didn't say that. Because of righteousness. Also, it's not persecution, particularly in our workplaces, I'm trying to think here, if our bosses, our seniors are on our case just because we're not very good employees. Some people interpret that as persecution. Maybe just we're not very good employees. We're not engaged and remaining faithful. See, I'm, I'm, um, I'm quite ashamed to admit this. I've alluded to, before, to it before, but in my early 20s, I was not a great witness at my old job. You notice how a lot of preachers, it's okay to talk about things they did wrong about 15 years ago. So that's okay. About 15 years ago, I did some wrong things. But since then, nothing. So, uh, no, I hope hope you know that's not true. And I do try and be um, vulnerable up here. But anyway, this is true for this particular story, okay? In my early 20s, I was not a good witness in my old job. I, uh, I was young and immature, that's a bit of an excuse, and there were times where I was ridiculed for my faith, particularly when I got engaged at 22 years old, everybody just thought, what are you doing, this guy has no idea, and I was pretty overzealous, I think, sharing my faith, and I was probably not particularly um, in tune, I could say kindly, uh, when I was sharing my faith, not very respectful sometimes, but sometimes I just copped it because I was an easy target as a Christian, but if I'm really honest... I thought my boss sort of had it in for me for those reasons, but some of the time I just wasn't that good an employee. I was slack. I wasn't working hard. See, there is a difference, isn't there? Engaging well and remaining faithful, it does mean in circumstances working hard. Okay. What's interesting as well is that you probably noticed this. 
It's clear to Daniel's enemies of his devotion to God, isn't it? They know the only way they're going to trip him up is if it has something to do with his faith. So he'd engaged and remained faithful, prospered in all he did. His witness was known to the people who hated him most. I wonder if people could say that about us. Everyone in our lives, from the whole spectrum, our best friends to the people that barely know us to the people that can't stand us, would they know that we are people of faith? Do we hide it well or do we winsomely speak about it? The people know. Everybody in our lives. How many people at work or in social circles know that we are people of faith? So the enemies of Daniel come up with a plan, a trap. One that's got to do with Daniel's unswerving commitment to God versus, I think, the king's vanity. Daniel's enemies, the other nobles, they come to the king. Oh, king, we think it's a good idea to issue this notice saying that in the empire, anyone who prays to anyone apart from you should be thrown into the lion's den. By the way, let's put it in writing so we can't take it back. Now, it seems strange, and you can see already that there's deceitfulness there because they've said all of us have decided this is a good idea. Well, Daniel wasn't consulted, right? He's a pretty senior administrator. So already we can see that there's nefarious things going on. And this is a weird thing to bring to the king. Like, what a strange thing. People can only pray to you for 30 days. It's got a time limit on his sort of divinity. It makes no sense. Commentators are divided. I won't give you the whole context of it. I've divided why, but maybe at the beginning we saw the administration of his kingdom was there's so many people were involved and maybe his power was diluted. So he thought, oh, he was attracted to this for 30 days. People will know that I am the centre of this empire. Maybe it's that. Or maybe he was just vain. Maybe he liked the idea of people praying to him for a month. We don't really know. Either way, the king agrees and Daniel's in trouble. Verse 10 tells us, Daniel heard about the decree, went home immediately to what? Do you remember? To pray. He prays. Text tells us this was his regular practice, three times a day. The Bible doesn't say you need to do pray three times or five times or ten times, nothing like that. It doesn't prescribe like that. But Daniel shaped his life around the practices that would form him into an engaged, faithful witness. See, these things don't just happen by accident, right? How else would he survive in a hostile environment like that? How can we possibly survive in our culture unless we are deliberate in the things that form us? We could spend a whole message on this, right? But hey, if it's not God's word, it's public opinion or just whatever feels right. If it's not prayer, it's social media. Big struggle for me. If it's not gathering with each other like this on Sunday, then it's any number of things. It's the beach or the mall or the cafe. If it's not joining with others around God's word midweek, it's Netflix, right? The things we do make us who we are. The things we do shape us into the people we want to be. If you're a Christian, you're thinking, I'm pretty tired in my walk at the moment, but I'm a regular at church. I'm not really praying much. I'm barely reading my Bible. I'm not gathering a lot of Christians. What we do shapes us into the people we want to be. Daniel prays to God at this time of crisis. Where else has he got to turn? His enemies seek him out. The little spies, right? They seek him out. They see him praying, and they dob on him. They take him back to the king. Take that news back to the king. Before they tell him Daniel's done this, they remind him arrogantly, oh, king, remember that law you, you put, your decree you put into law in writing that it can't be repealed? Yes, yes, I remember. Well, Daniel has disobeyed. 
Daniel is breaking your newly minted decree. Verse 14 tells us the king was greatly distressed at this because he was fond of Daniel. He liked Daniel. Now he sees he's caught. He doesn't know what to do. The most powerful man in the world could not help Daniel. most powerful man in the world couldn't help him. Lucky for Daniel, his faith is in one more powerful than him. The king gives the order. The man the king so admired is to be thrown into the lion's den for what? For faithfully serving God. And the king echoes this with his final words to him. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. I don't know. I've thought about this. We're, not, we're told nothing of Daniel's mind. What's going on for him? We, we're not told in the passage, right? Throughout this whole ordeal, what's going on in his mind? He trusted God. We know that. But he can't have been unaffected by this trial. Scared and confused, he's left in the darkness of the den. Just imagine that for a minute. Thrown into this lion's den, a stone rolled over so that he can't escape with only the sounds of wild creatures approaching. Daniel's left there all alone. Or is he? The king returns to his palace. We're told he can't enjoy entertainment, can't eat, can't sleep. I don't feel sorry for him, but uh, his vanity has cost the life of a man that he admired, has it? I like this one commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, says this, Poor Darius. Yeah, poor Darius. He goes without food, entertainment, and sleep. He is powerless to help and driven to despair. His helplessness suggests to us that it's better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than a king in a palace without faith. That's great, isn't it? How true is that? And he's proved right by the events of the next morning. At first light, the king rushes to the lion's den and some part of him is hoping for salvation, right, for Daniel because he yells out, Daniel, has your God been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel says this, Daniel answers, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, P.S., your majesty. King's overjoyed. He's overjoyed. He orders for Daniel to be brought out and they find not a scratch on him. Not a scratch. God has preserved Daniel's life completely. And Darius the king, he's now cottoned on, I reckon, to the evil intentions of Daniel's enemies. He has them, along with their families, thrown into the den. And if you kind of thought maybe the day before Darius fed the lions so they wouldn't eat Daniel, or maybe he exchanged them for really old and tired ones, we don't know. Maybe you thought that, right? You'd be mistaken. Because these people lose their lives before they even hit the ground. A brutal ending, isn't it? A brutal ending of this story. God rescues and God saves. What a story. Famous for good reason, isn't it? What a great story. It's got everything a good story has, right? Dramatic story of rescue, right? Court intrigue, faithfulness in the face of persecution. Two kingdoms coming together, which one will win? Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself inserting myself into these stories, you know, thinking, who would I be? It's natural to kind of do that, isn't it, to to identify with certain characters in the story. Have you thought about that? In today's story, who might we be? Who are we? It's easy to want to identify with Daniel, isn't it? Who doesn't want to be like Daniel? He's the hero of the story, right? Faithful in the face of persecution, and yet... In answering this question, who are we in this story, I think we've got to ask a bigger question to do with the whole Bible, and it's this. 
Is the Bible primarily about us or about God? Is the Bible primarily about us or about God? Is it mostly about us and what we need to do? Or is it mostly about God, who he is and what he's done? His great acts of salvation. You see, this actually affects how we interpret this passage today. See, I believe, hear this loud and clear, please, if I can say it clearly. Hear it loud and clear. I believe the Bible is unquestionably for us, more relevant to us today than the, 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 the newest technology out there, absolutely for us, and yet primarily about God. Therefore, instead of making ourselves the hero of today's story, the hero is God. One way to preach this is I could um, leave the sermon here, right? And you'd be thinking, great, that's excellent. That'd be really nice, thanks. Um, I could leave the sermon here and say, everyone go home and be like Daniel. Be like Daniel. Stand up to persecution. Pray when the going gets tough. Be without corruption. Trust in God in all circumstances. This is all good and true, right? It's good. And yet it's missing a key step. It's missing a key truth, which isn't always easy to hear. But that is the preacher's job. And it's this. The problem is we are not like Daniel. We cannot be like Daniel. We aren't without fault. We aren't always faithful. We don't always turn to God in prayer. We often compromise. We can't be our own saviours. We need saving. Just like me in the water, helpless out there, needing a lifeguard to come and rescue me, you and I, we need a hero to come save us. We can't be the hero of our own story. We are unable to live like Daniel. We certainly can't save ourselves. You see, Daniel is a type of Christ, like Abraham, Moses, David before him. Daniel points to one who was greater than himself, one who would stand up not just to one king and one nation, but to the very thing each of us is infected with, the curse of sin and death. Daniel points to one who is more faithful, completely sinless, and mighty to save. Of course, it is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he is all over this passage. Let's have a quick look. Daniel, right? Remember? He was so skilled, no one like him. Right? In the kingdom, no one like him, far above everybody else. The epitome of biblical wisdom. Let me tell you, there's been no one like the God-man, Jesus. His life was completely extraordinary. His miracles made him famous. His power over darkness made the evil spirits flee before him. His teaching is unparalleled to this day. Daniel's enemies had to come up with a a nasty and tricky plan to bring him down, didn't they? Because there was no corruption in him, because he was blameless. Jesus led a perfect life. Loved the unlovely, welcomed the outcast, touched lepers, restored dignity to women, blessed children, spoke truth to power. They could find no corruption in him. He was faultless. 1 Peter 2.22 says of Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Daniel's commitment to God was obvious to his enemies, wasn't it? They knew his faith was the backbone of his life, uncompromising faith. Jesus never wavered on his mission to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He resisted intense persecution from the devil, distraction from his closest friends, the efforts of the crowd to crown him their version of king, yet he would not be swayed in his mission to rescue the lost. That's you and me. Because of his upright faith, Daniel, right, his enemies had to devise a deceitful way to bring him down, 
He endured false allegations of treason. Jesus endured ridiculous false allegations at his trial. The jealousy of the religious leaders was palpable. They were determined to remove this threat to their power. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, unable to stand Jesus' rejection of worldly power and wealth, betrays Jesus for a purse of silver. The Son of God then endures a kangaroo court with false witnesses testifying against the very personification of love, fabricating stories because they could find no true fault in him. Daniel, faced with the harsh reality of this new decree that he could not pray to God for 30 days, he did the only thing he knew what to do. He was turned to his regular practice, kneels before God in submissive prayer. Jesus, time and again, when faced with the enormity of his salvation task, his mission, turns to his heavenly Father in prayer. We see this so richly in the garden, don't we? Jesus, overwhelmed with the enormity of his mission, brings it to his heavenly Father in prayer. He seeks his Father's will, not his own. Why? Because there was no other way. Darius, the king, because of his vanity, foolishly trusts his nobles, right? And he agrees to this ridiculous decree of making him the center of the world for a month. Now that's set in law, it cannot be changed. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus faces a similar law, something that can't be changed, but with vastly different foundations. There's no other way. No other way to complete his mission of saving sinners like you and me. He must drink the cup of God's wrath. That represents the judgment of God, meaning he's got to bear the punishment for sins. Not his sin, but ours. And his justice is right and true. It can't just be forgotten about. I don't know about you, but I've had heaps of conversations over the years um, that kind of go like this. Why, Why did Jesus have to die? It seems so extreme. It's such a big deal. Why did he have to die? If God's all-powerful, why can't he just say, don't worry about it? If God is the author of all things, why can't he just sweep it under the carpet and say, this sin, it's, it's okay, I forgive, I forgive it, it's, it's all right. But you know what? If that happened in any area of our lives, in any area of our society, we'd be outraged. I wonder if you saw this week, um, this has been announced that four people will be charged or have been charged with the shooting down of flight MH17 over the Ukraine in uh, 2014. It was a horrific disaster. This Malaysian flight was flying, flying over a war zone and it was shot down. It was a commercial flight and it was shot down. 298 people lost their lives. It happened next month five years ago. But here's the thing. No one is saying, ah, uh, it was a while ago. Right? It was a while ago. It's... Let's just call up the search for the people who did it. It's not worth it. No one is saying that. Of course it's worth it. Absolutely worth it. Justice matters. I saw Julie Bishop, our ex-foreign minister on TV, saying, no, 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 justice matters. These people will be brought to account. Justice must be paid. Of course, justice must be done. And no judge would ever hold their position for long if they just dismissed cases saying, don't worry about it. It's okay. Imagine the victims of these crimes, the families of these victims. How often do we see victims or family of victims outside courtrooms saying, we want justice? Or maybe they think a soft sentence has been handed down and they say, we didn't get justice today. Why do you think that's innate within us? It's because we're made in his image. 
God hates sin, and that's a good thing. Okay, moving on. We're almost done here. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. A stone is rolled over the entrance to flee him, sorry, to stop him fleeing from the beasts. Daniel descends into the darkness of the den, forsaken and alone. It looks like Daniel's enemies have won the day. If you didn't know the rest of the story, you'd think that's it. Daniel's enemies have won. Their plan has succeeded. Jesus is thrown to the guards who beat him, mock him, hang him on a cross. Imagine what his followers must have been thinking. The 12, the women, his mother at the cross, what would they be thinking? He had a good run. I mean, miracles and the teaching was amazing. This kingdom of God he was talking about was great, but it's over. It's over with the nails in his hands. That's it. It's done. Our great master and teacher is being executed. No one present thought this was the way God would bring about salvation. And yet, God uses the evil plans of people to bring about his glorious rescue. It's what God does. What Daniel's enemies intended for evil, God uses for good. An angel sent to the lion's den to protect him. What Judas, the Romans, the religious leaders intended for evil, God uses for good. Because, yes, sinful men were responsible for Christ's death, yet Jesus went willingly to the cross as our substitute. Daniel was rescued from the lion's den. Jesus was forsaken. Daniel walked free. Jesus was condemned. So we go free. But it's not the end. A stone is also rolled over the front of Jesus' grave, but the grave could not hold him because Jesus defeated death by death. God raises him from the dead. Just like Darius rushes to the den early the next morning to see if Daniel has survived, the women on the third day rush to the tomb of Jesus and find it empty. Another angel has been sent from heaven and says to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Our great saviour Jesus defeats our greatest enemies of sin, death and the devil in a classic judo move, using his enemies' power against them. Daniel is rescued because he trusted in God. Jesus trusted in God, but was killed so that we might live. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. Just ponder this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we'll end here. This is the truth of the gospel. Once this has melted our hearts, once we grasp that he did that for me, Remembering this, it frees us to want to serve him, want to pray to him, want to trust him, want to stand up for him, want to bear persecution for him because we are confident that he who loves us will never forsake us. Amen to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus did this on our behalf. We thank you that Daniel points to a greater Daniel one who is faultless, one who rescues and saves. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone in this room that has not yet put their hope and trust in you, the great rescuer, I ask that they would take a step of faith towards you today.
Who else can save like you? Who else can save like our God? May we seek you and find you with all of our hearts today. Amen.